Welcome to Wisdom, Love, and Beauty, a podcast for the soul and the home of dangerous wisdom. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, and today we begin with a strange but true story. It all started back in 1991 in the San Francisco Bay Area. At that time, Dr. Elizabeth Lloyd Mayer was a successful psychologist. She was a clinician and also a scientist doing research in her field. She was well regarded. She had been trained in the Western scientific tradition. She got her PhD at Stanford University and she was on staff at Berkeley in addition to having a private practice. Back in 1991, Dr. Mayer's daughter was 11 years old and she had just started public performance with her harp. She had fallen in love with the harp when she was six years old and Dr. Mayer managed to get her a beautiful handcrafted harp. It was made by a master harp maker. It was a beautiful instrument with a wonderful sound and it was also pretty valuable. Her daughter was playing in a holiday concert. There was a performance Saturday night And when she went back Sunday for the matinee, the harp was gone. The auditorium had been locked, but the harp was missing. All the normal things that you or I would do. She, of course, called the police. She started asking around. There was even a local news story about the case because nothing was turning up. And the news story didn't help. A friend of hers said to Dr. Mayer, look, if if you really want to find that harp, you should be willing to do anything. And I think you should contact a dowser. The first time I remember hearing about dowsing was when I was a little kid. My grandfather explained to me that he had used a dowser to find the water on his property in order to drill a well. This was a common thing. It was rural Pennsylvania, an area with lots of small mining towns, and this is how a lot of people found their water source. Good dowsers were well respected in the community, and it was the standard practice for a lot of people when drilling a well. You just contacted a dowser. That's how you did it. Dr. Mayer's friend was suggesting that dowsers might be able to find more than just water. Maybe we can use dowsing to find lost objects. Maybe we can use dowsing to find lost insights. Maybe we become dowsers of the soul when seeking the wellspring of inspiration and realization. Anyway, it all sounds kind of weird if you're scientifically trained, and Dr. Mayer thought it was a little strange, but... She also had a broken-hearted daughter. Two months of police work and all of the other normal methods, including the local news story, had turned up no leads. She figured she had nothing to lose, so she said to her friend, look, if you can find me a good dowser, I'm willing to give it a try. Her friend contacted the American Society of Dowsers. Yes, there is such a thing. And at the time, 
The president was a man named Harold McCoy. The friend put Dr. Mayer in touch with Harold McCoy, and when she called him, the first thing he said was, let me see if it's still in Oakland. The performance had been in Oakland, so that's where the harp was stolen. Within a few moments, Harold McCoy determined that the harp was still there. It's important to note that this directly contradicted the view of the Oakland Police Department. They were ready to close the case because they concluded that the harp would have left Oakland within a matter of days, weeks at the most. It was a slightly smaller harp. Remember, it was custom made for a little girl. And it was easily transported in a station wagon, a van, a small truck. And because it was valuable, the thief would likely have found a way to get rid of it as quickly as possible. Why keep a harp lying around? But the dowser said it was in Oakland. And he asked Dr. Mayer for a map of the city in order to pinpoint its location. Can you imagine that? The dowser claims he can pinpoint the location of a lost harp. And Harold McCoy at the time lived in the south in Arkansas. So over 2,000 miles away, McCoy is claiming he can douse over a map and find a missing harp that the police couldn't find. Now, this is 1991, so Harold McCoy didn't have Google Maps, and that meant that Dr. Mayer had to go and FedEx him a map of the city of Oakland. Within a couple of days, he got back to her and told her which house in Oakland the harp was in. Oakland's a fairly large city, and according to McCoy, the harp was in a part of town that Dr. Mayer had never been to. But she wanted to go and just look at the house where the harp supposedly was being held. She just felt so curious. And so she went to the location, she satisfied her curiosity, but she also felt pretty stuck. What could she do? She couldn't very well barge into the house. She couldn't even knock and politely ask, hey, do you happen to have my harp? She decided to call the police and she told them that she had received an anonymous tip that the harp was in this particular house. But they, of course, told her they couldn't get a search warrant on that basis. She decided to put up flyers in a two-block area around that house. We might call it an act of desperation. However, not long after putting up those flyers, someone called. It was a man who claimed that his next-door neighbor had the very harp she was looking for in his garage. He said he could arrange to get it back for her. After a few more phone calls, the man told her to go to a particular 24-hour Safeway grocery store to be there at 10 o'clock at night and to meet someone there who would have her harp. She pulls into the Safeway grocery store parking lot. She sees a young man loafing around. He looks at her and asks her if she was there for a harp. She says yes and he pulls the harp out of his car and puts it into hers. 
Imagine that drive home for Dr. Mayer. Again, Oakland's kind of big, and she lived in Berkeley at the time, so maybe half an hour drive at least. Two months of looking in ordinary ways, police working on the case, a local television news story, and no harp. She phones up a dowser. 2,000 miles away, and now she's got the harp. As Dr. Mayer describes it, when she pulled into her driveway, she had the following thought. This changes everything. There's something beautiful about that thought, about the moment that is that thought, that thinking fresh. Maybe we could take a moment now and let it sink in. It's nighttime, maybe 10.30, close to 11. Imagine you're sitting in the dark. It's quiet. A sense of wonder comes over you. In my lineage, Plato and Aristotle are my ancestors. And they disagreed on a lot of things. But one thing they agreed on is that a philosophical or spiritual life begins in wonder. A life of wisdom, love, and beauty begins in wonder, which we could also refer to as an intimate experience of sacredness and mystery. We could say that my ancestors didn't make the situation clear enough because wonder is not just the beginning. It is the beginning, the middle, and the end. Wonder is the very path of a spiritual life. And it's the fruit of a philosophical or spiritual life, a life of wisdom, love, and beauty. The expression, this changes everything captures Dr. Mayer's feeling that maybe her ideas about reality weren't really matching up with reality itself. A lot of philosophical traditions say that no ideas about reality capture reality. But more importantly, what love wisdom or philosophy, spirituality often indicate is that our ideas, our knowledge, what we think we know, is often the barrier between ourselves and a deeper understanding or at least an understanding of what we actually are and what reality actually is. After all, what is the human mind that a dowser was apparently able to locate this harp from 2,000 miles away? What is the nature of reality that this phenomenon happened? These are profoundly important questions, and this is just one story. We're going to consider a few more of these stories, and I want to make it clear that there are many, many such stories. You might have experienced something like this yourself. These contemplations, these wisdom, love, and beauty contemplations are not 
in a narrow sense about whether telepathy and dowsing are real. And we don't exclusively focus on these sorts of phenomena, but they will definitely come up periodically for a variety of reasons. Because among other things, we want to consider how we know. If we want to know, really know, what the meaning of life is, what the meaning of our life is, if we want to know the nature of our own mind, the purpose of our existence here, if we want to know the nature of the divine, or if we are non-theistic, if we want to know the nature of reality, all of that is influenced by the way we go about knowing things. In other words, we might by default think we just find out facts and then know them. But what we know depends on the way we come to know it. This is one of the most profound realizations in both the spiritual and philosophical traditions of the world and in cutting-edge science. And I say all this in part because Dr. Mayer's book, which she wrote about this and other experiences, this, this adventure she took into This Changes Everything, that book is called Extraordinary Knowing. It's a lovely title, a little bit provocative. And one question we might have is whether the kind of knowing she inquires into is actually so extraordinary. Maybe it's a part of all of us, maybe an integral, intimate part that we need to get in touch with. And one of the things we do over uh, the other contemplations and what we'll do in future contemplations is look at how, concretely speaking, how can we get in touch with a fuller way of knowing and being, living and loving, how can we think the way nature works? How can we live and love in the fullness of our being? These are central issues in wisdom-based coaching and in the wisdom traditions around the world. How do we know better? How do we live and love better? Now this kind of thinking in the fullness of our being, we could call it soul thinking or original thinking not original thinking as we use that term in the dominant culture, which just means some kind of novelty, which ultimately ends up perpetuating the pattern of insanity, but original thinking in the deeper spiritual philosophical sense, which is a more subtle concept. Well, for now, let's just appreciate the beauty of this moment Dr. Mayer experienced. Because you yourself might be very skeptical about dowsing, or you might be really into it, or you might be skeptical about other things. We all have encountered the limits to our open-mindedness. But I want to say that I myself am scientifically trained. My original focus in philosophy was philosophy of science. So I studied science with great interest and excitement. I took a lot of science courses, spent time in the lab, I always thought of science as the gold standard for knowledge because that's the way the dominant culture looks at it. And I still 
see it as an important source of a certain kind of knowledge. I spend a lot of time still reading scientific articles and books. This culture, the dominant culture, for, for people both inside the university and outside of it, science represents the gold standard for knowing. If you want to know something, you look at the available science. That's a default for a lot of people in our culture. Of course, we have a huge anti-science movement as well. There are complicated reasons for all of that. But one question we want to ask is whether or not the ways we go about knowing things in science are really the best ways for us and the world. Are those ways of knowing perhaps incomplete in some way we don't fully comprehend? Are they partial, fragmented, or even fragmenting? Now stick with me, some of this might sound technical. Let's just go back to that uncanny experience of this changes everything. A lot of things can happen in our life to trigger that feeling of this changes everything. Sometimes there's strange phenomena various things we could refer to as anomalous data, strange stuff, the unexplained. Anomalous data is a fancy term for stuff that happens that doesn't fit with our expectations or our understanding of reality, our picture of what reality is. Anomalous data are vital for the development of science. Dr. Mayer's first inclination as this sense of wonder took over her, was to try to resolve this in some way that fit her scientific training. And that's the way we operate in science, in the dominant culture. When you see anomalous data, you first try to write it off, see if you can fit it back into the paradigm. Call it noise, call it coincidence, whatever it might be. But the sense of wonder has some magic. The sense of wonder can wake us up in the middle of the night with a kind of excitement. And sometimes there's something else there, something in the sense of wonder that agitates us or even frightens us a little. A moment of this changes everything can bring a significant level of discomfort as we experience the threat that our view of reality might not be right. We tend to find it pretty unsettling as human beings when something that we're sure we know might not be the case. As Emerson wrote that delightful line, he wrote, people wish to be settled only as far as they are unsettled is there any hope for them. Dr. Mayer found herself pretty unsettled. She would wake up at three in the morning trying to think this through. There's the harp back in her home and yet it was dowsing that supposedly got it there? Kind of freaky, especially if you've been scientifically trained. One of her colleagues at Berkeley, a statistician, told her, Stop losing sleep. I'm telling you, 
the odds that this is an actual case of dowsing are way greater than the odds that this is a coincidence. That's all it is, a coincidence. That's the most common way maybe for scientists to respond to anomalous data, to treat it as noise or as fraud. Noise in the data means something essentially meaningless is going on. That's what noise is. It's meaningless. In everyday life, we denigrate these experiences by calling them anecdotal or mere coincidence or noise or projection. If something anomalous is just noise, we don't have to face the possibility that a new kind of music is coming through music we don't feel ready to hear. So we dismiss that possibility and call it noise. It's not music. Whether or not we are scientists in a formal sense, we can all fall prey to this. There's a kind of arrogance in asserting that we know already how the music of the cosmos should sound, how it does sound. Many philosophical and spiritual traditions overtly call us out on that kind of arrogance. Our arrogance about what we know. They try to get us to sense how our supposed knowledge functions as a barrier to greater intimacy, coming to understand ourselves more fully, more intimacy with ourselves and the cosmos, coming to know each other greater intimacy with each other and getting real insight into the nature of self and reality. The statistician who told Dr. Mayer to stop losing sleep was essentially telling her to close off to any possible music that might be coming through. But Dr. Mayer decided to remain open. She kept an open mind and began to explore. One of the things she did was to start a study group on these phenomena in the American Psychoanalytic Association. That's a scientific and professional association. It might seem like a strange place to leap in, but Dr. Mayer knew that Freud himself had an interest in some of these phenomena, as had other famous and well-regarded psychologists because they thought some of these phenomena might be very important to the therapeutic process. Isn't that an interesting notion? That healing ourselves might sometimes require the entrance of something anomalous. Healing, in at least some cases, might require us to arrive at a moment of wonder, a moment of this changes everything. Dr. Mayer teamed up with another highly regarded American psychologist named Carol Gilligan. You might have heard of her. And they formed a study group called Intuition, Unconscious Communication, and Thought Transference. Freud, of all people, had specifically talked about thought transference, which he felt was something vital in the psychoanalytic interaction. How many of us never heard that in Psychology 101? That thought transference was important to Freud 
and might be vital in a psychotherapeutic interaction. Gilligan and Mayer did not want to have, as Dr. Mayer puts it in her book, voyeurs coming to the study group. They didn't want kibitzers or gawkers. They wanted people really engaging with this stuff. So when they sent out the announcement for a study group, they insisted that people put in their application a story that involved some sort of anomalous data. Something, for instance, that their patient knew or something that they knew which should not have been able to be known based on our ordinary scientific way of looking at the world. Mayor and Gilligan wanted to make sure they were getting people genuinely wrestling with these issues. No kibitzers, no uh, kind of, you know, laid-back, detached critics. But people with a, a questioning mind really sincerely grappling. Now, how many would they get? Well, it turned out they were flooded with applications. The group filled up rapidly, and they had to send out letters to many, many therapists letting them know the group had maxed out and they had to be put on a wait list. Within a few days of having sent out those letters, I know this is old school (laughs) letters, Within a few days of having sent out those letters, the science director, the science director of the APA called Dr. Mayer and begged her to do something about the situation because there were so many people who were bugging him about getting into the group. There was that much interest. Keep in mind, we're talking about a group of people with conventional Western dominant culture scientific education in psychology and medicine. These are not subjects you're going to encounter in medical school unless mentioned dismissively. Same thing in PhD programs. So it was remarkable. The response indicated that this was somehow important to a significant number of people engaged in a professional organization we would otherwise think would take a dismissive view of phenomena like this. Dr. Mayer realized she had not just experienced a strange phenomenon, but she had stumbled into a pervasive set of phenomena that people were simply not talking about. But why not? Why silence on something that was affecting so many people? Well, maybe in part because they were nervous. The dominant paradigm wants to insist that these anomalous experiences are mere anecdote, coincidence, projection, just noise in a mechanistic universe. But our experience from the inside, inside these phenomena, reveals them as more than mere coincidences or noise in the data. If we have an experience that makes us say, this changes everything, but the worldview that we and our colleagues share seems to say, this changes nothing, well, we might just keep it quiet. And if we don't keep it quiet, 
It could have a negative impact on our career, our reputation, maybe our whole life. Let's consider an example of one of the stories Mayer and Gilligan received. One therapist was working with a little girl. This particular session with the little girl was on the anniversary of the death of the therapist's brother. Many years before starting therapy with this little girl, the therapist's brother had drowned while trying to save someone else's life. This was not something the therapist had ever shared with the little girl. And again, it was before big data. The little girl didn't just Google her therapist and discover this. The anniversary of her brother's death was kind of a heavy day in a certain way. But the therapist was trying to be present, and according to her own account, she wasn't thinking about her brother during the session with the little girl. The session started out with the little girl playing. In the middle of playing, she suddenly stopped, turned to the therapist, looked her in the eye and said, Your brother is drowning. You have to save him. The therapist was pretty shocked, but she assured the little girl that no one was drowning and everything was all right. However, the episode stayed with her. Imagine something like that happening to you. What would you think? It might prompt you to say, this changes everything. What is the human mind that this could happen? And maybe just now, I got a glimpse of what we are. Maybe there's a lot more than I ever imagined. Dr. Mayer's book, Extraordinary Knowing, is a wonderful compilation of a good bit of anomalous data and a critique of our habitual reaction to it in the dominant culture. I'm sharing all of this with you in part because this book is such an enjoyable summary of data I encountered in my own research and spent a lot of time studying. As a philosopher, I'm very interested in things that challenge our paradigms. Many philosophical and spiritual traditions insist that if we want to be truly happy and realize our fullest potential and the real nature of success, we have to get past our limited and limiting ideas about what reality is and what we ourselves are. We can see in our current ecological catastrophe and our political, social, and economic tragedies, a profound confusion about what reality is and what we ourselves are. A lot of the research Dr. Mayer presents in this book helps us to at least begin to question some of the deeper views we have that might be holding us back. Again, it's not about believing in telepathy or dowsing, but facing the deeper problem about how we know and what it is we think we know, facing the incoherence in our vision of ourselves and the cosmos. Dr. Mayer did a wonderful job writing this book. 
While she draws on a lot of scholarly and scientific material, there's nothing technical in the writing itself. Rather, her book is a very reader-friendly book and a lot of fun. Maybe this contemplation will get you excited enough to read it for yourself. And that would be great because more people should know about some of these paradigm-challenging phenomena. A lot of the data that Dr. Mayer presents comes from peer-reviewed journals. It meets and often exceeds the standards of science that we expect to see in peer-reviewed academic journals. And a lot of my colleagues in the university probably wouldn't even realize this. They would still try to find ways to be dismissive. But for the most part, I think people are not aware of these studies, how overwhelming the anomalous data is. And people who have never read these studies, never read them, will nevertheless become immediately dismissive because they just know, already they know how reality works. This metaphysical police force is very vocal, and in some cases they have impressive credentials. Now, even though the reality sheriffs may criticize what we are going to consider, nevertheless, maybe it can help us to open our mind, or if you're already open to these things, can we think of them carefully together? And stay in the not knowing because I think one of the challenges is to think that we know what these anomalous data mean or, or, or that since our view of the cosmos might allow for these phenomena, then our view must be right, but we're still stuck in the same problem. But first, what I, I want to stay with, whether it doesn't matter what side you are on, on anomalous data, if you're resistant to it or you're open to it, I want to give a sense, a little more clarity of how guarded and resistant some people can be, especially highly educated, when it comes to discussing the kinds of things we're considering right now. Now, I'd like to consider the case of Robert J. Stoller. Stoller was a pretty insightful psychiatrist. He got his MD from UC San Francisco Medical School in 1948 and he joined the Department of Psychiatry at UCLA in 1954. So these are prestigious institutions. During his career, he became rather influential. He published at least nine books and 115 articles. Early in his career, Stoller was supervised by Dr. Ralph Greenson, a psychiatrist with a significant reputation of his own. Something happened between Stoller and Greenson that shocked both of them. Stoller wrote up an article about it, but Greenson advised him not to publish it, even though Greenson himself, according to his wife, had been flabbergasted, she said, by the experience in question. Still, Greenson thought that publishing the material would jeopardize Stoller's career, so Stoller kept the article buried. But years later, he couldn't shake it. He became increasingly convinced that a new frontier of psychiatry 
would be found in the sorts of phenomena he wrote about in this article. Keep in mind that Stoller was reluctant to publish the article and it only appeared after his death. In the article, he asks his readers to keep an open mind because the material is so strange to our current worldview. Let's consider the story that started the article out. As a young psychiatrist, Stoller had both a supervisor as well as another psychiatrist he went to for his own psychological growth. His own psychoanalytic sessions were on Mondays. His meetings with his supervisor were on Thursdays. On Monday, he goes into his analysis session and he reports a dream he had on Saturday night. A dream that he says was unlike any he had before or since. In the dream, he is very clearly working in the same ER, emergency room, that he worked at in a San Francisco hospital while he was a medical student and intern. In the dream, a medical student is brought in for emergency treatment. He has just undergone a compound comminuted fracture in his left leg. A comminuted fracture is a fracture in which the bone splinters into more than two pieces. It's the kind of thing that happens in high-impact events, such as a motorcycle accident. Stoller is clear that he had seen the results of motorcycle accidents in his ER work, but none involving medical students specifically. So when he spoke with his analyst, he was unclear about any direct associations. He had no idea why the dream happened, because he never had dreams about the ER, and he had never seen a patient like the one in his dream. He couldn't understand what it might mean. On the Thursday after reporting all of this to his analyst, who documented it all, Stoller had his meeting with Greenson, who was his advisor. Stoller was deeply impressed by Greenson, and although their relationship was, as Stoller puts it, intense, he did keep a professional distance, so much so that he never greeted Dr. Greenson with anything more than hello. That is, until that Thursday after his dream, when, for some reason, he said, How are you? Now, these are two psychiatrists used to keeping professional distance, but oddly enough, Dr. Greenson did not give a perfunctory response. Instead, he said, I am all right now, but we had a terrible experience over the weekend. What was the terrible experience? On Saturday night, the night Stoller had his dream, Greenson's son, Danny, had a motorcycle accident near San Francisco. Keep in mind that Greenson and Stoller lived in Los Angeles at this time. Dr. Greenson's son, Danny, had never been on a motorcycle before and he lost control. He ended up 
in the ER with a compound comminuted fracture in his left leg. The exact same injury Stoller had dreamt about on the very same night the event unfolded. Recall that Stoller's dream had been about a medical student. Dr. Greenson specifically said that he hoped his son would be able to start medical school on time, given the timing of the accident. His son Danny did in fact go on to get a medical degree. Stoller eventually wrote all of this up and he included in the article several more instances in which his own patients dreamed about things that were happening in his life which they could not possibly have known about unless we assume they were spying on him and then telling him about what they saw under the guise of having dreamt it. That doesn't seem plausible. Even so, Stoller followed Greenson's advice and did not publish the article in his lifetime. But you can now find Stoller's article online. It's called Telepathic Dreams. To give you a sense of its content, here's an event that happened a few months after the incident with Dr. Greenson's son, Danny. Stoller gives us a report of a dream one of his patients had. The patient said they went to a party at someone else's home. A crowd of people were hanging out in a large room. This room had one wall made totally of glass. The patient said he saw an older man there who he described as kind. The man walked by him carrying a large object and then suddenly smashed through the glass. The patient said he felt frightened, that maybe the man had gotten hurt, and there was glass all around. But the patient said that, in some strange manner, the man was fine. Interesting dream. But here's the thing. Stoller tells us that the dream was reported to him on a Monday, and it was dreamed on Saturday night. That very night, Stoller himself had been at a party. A crowd of people were hanging out in the living room. One entire wall of that room was glass, and there was a sliding glass door. A bunch of chairs had been brought into the living room for people to sit and hear a talk, and Stoller was helping carry them back outside. He made several trips through the open glass door, but on one of his trips back in, someone had closed it, unbeknownst to Stoller. Because of the lighting in the room, the glass was basically invisible. And when Stoller headed back out with another chair, a large object, he plowed right into that glass, which shattered everywhere. And somehow... Stoller was basically unharmed. Let's go back to Dr. Mayer's book and go back to another story that she relates. This one comes from a therapist who had a practice of taking some quiet time between sessions just to rest his mind. 
Now, this doesn't quite count as meditation in a formal sense, but especially for people in the dominant culture, meditation is very intimate with relaxation. It's vital for us to relax our habitual reactivity to gain intimacy with our mind. And when we let go sufficiently, we can liberate ourselves into larger ecologies of mind, coming to insights, coming to know things we might not otherwise know. Now, during one such moment, the therapist said they experienced a vision of a little boy, a toddler, running around with a plastic bag on his head. There was a lot of fear and distress in this vision. Two hours later, a patient comes in, and he relates to the therapist how over the weekend, his toddler son had come into the kitchen with a plastic bag over his head. The man immediately wanted to get the plastic bag off his son's head, but when he approached his son, the little boy ran away. This provoked a lot of fear and distress, and the patient called out to his wife for help. Thankfully, they managed to get the plastic bag off their son's head. We can sense the powerful resonance of that moment of visionary experience that the therapist had and the real-life event as his patient lived it. Imagine that. Picture having this vision in your mind and then unexpectedly hearing a story that sounds exactly like that vision. It could give you pause. Notice that the pause is essential to receive the vision in the first place, that our busy, habitual mind covers over the possibility of receiving these kinds of visions. But when something like that does happen, we have another chance to take a pause. And this pause is essential to a spiritual and philosophical life. It's a thing Socrates kept driving people toward, to pause what they thought they knew, to arrive at a place of not knowing, not knowing how to move forward, and so having to be still. You may have heard about Socratic irony. Socrates would go around saying he didn't know anything, and that seemed ironic because sometimes it seemed as if he did know something. So that's one aspect of Socratic irony. But we might sense an even more important aspect of Socratic irony. And that is the way Socrates, in his exchanges with people, demonstrated the irony that we ourselves live and presence every time we claim to know something. We all use certain ways of knowing. We use ways of knowing to try to make ourselves happy, to establish stability in our lives, to try to make our career function, to try to get ground under our feet, to try to keep our society well organized, our family, our relationships, to try to cultivate our culture, 
to try to educate our youth. We use what we think we know to do all that. It's inescapable. And quite ironically, it leads to more suffering, to broken relationships, corruption in politics, more wars, the collapse of cultures, the collapse of ecologies, and we're all participating in that. All sorts of negative side effects and anomalous data come out of our attempts to know ourselves, to know the world, and to make ourselves and those we love happy. The essence of Socratic irony is thus that we ourselves are the ironic ones, not Socrates. By doing what we think we know is the right thing to do, we end up with precisely what we don't want. We know what will make us happy, what will make the world better, what's the right thing for our children. We know what's going to make us healthy. And yet we end up unsatisfied and unwell. And even in the places where we admit ignorance, well, I don't know, I don't know, we still can't move our life forward without something that we're taking as known. And there are so many things that we take as known. We know what's good for our children. And yet something's going wrong in our system of education. We know how to run the culture or how to change it for the better, supposedly. We know how to run the economy or how to improve that for the better. And yet things keep going wrong there too. We're in the same situation Socrates was in. The same problems he saw in his culture we see today. Education is a mess. Same thing that was a core concern for Socrates. And ironically, he got put on trial for corrupting the youth when he was trying to save them from a corrupt way of educating. We have increasing inequality. There are more slaves on the planet now than there ever were, even though slavery is illegal in a lot of places. The vast majority of people feel disconnected from the work that they do. Stupid jobs have proliferated. Socrates would probably have a heart attack just looking at how people are being forced to waste their lives. We have an epidemic of loneliness. The list goes on and on. Now, we've had a lot of material growth since the time of Socrates, yet people aren't any happier because we're not material beings. I mean, that's part of the issue, the incoherence in our worldview. We know even by our own scientific measures that people aren't any happier today than they were, say, 50 years ago. And we can imagine people aren't genuinely happier today than they were at the time that Socrates lived. In a certain way, there's been some kind of development. A certain level of material well-being has increased, relatively speaking. It's not clear what it means or what exactly even it is. You know, we shouldn't pretend that nothing good has come from 2,500 years of something like development in the dominant culture. But we definitely shouldn't pretend that nothing quite seriously bad or even tragic hasn't come from this development, that we don't even necessarily know what development means anymore. 
Crucially, we seem to be stuck in this old problem of spiritual irony. And we seem to maybe need the same solution Socrates suggested. That pause. That spaciousness in the soul sense of wonder and sacredness that allows us to say, this changes everything. And it's in maybe the stuckness, the saying, I don't know then, I don't know how to take the next step forward. Ah, staying there in the not knowing. Then maybe a genuinely new way of knowing and being, living and loving might emerge. Let's consider another story that indicates the beautiful possibilities for healing and transformation that could arise if we were to enter that space in the soul, that space of wonder and this larger ecology of mind that allows for better ways of knowing. One therapist who wrote into this group that Gilligan and Mayer were starting, instead of writing about an interaction with one of his patients, he wrote about something that happened to him. He was diagnosed with sarcoidosis, which is a runaway growth of a particular kind of inflammatory cell. It can be dangerous. And in his case, the doctor said it was terminal. In order to deal with the weight of this situation, he took up meditation. And then he took up running. In part, that was to relieve stress. It's the kind of thing we do to deal with a situation like this. But I would suggest somehow the running and the meditation began to blend. The account that we get in Dr. Dr. Mayer's book doesn't quite tell the story that way, but it's a pretty short account. And you know, forgive my suggestion that, that I think this is what was happening. Meditation tends to, if we allow it, it tends to pervade our life. And when we have a brush with death, sometimes the limit to our open-mindedness gets itself erased a little so that we become more open. We become more able to take that pause and open up to possibilities. Now let's preface the short account then by recognizing something the man in this story himself might not have consciously known. Namely, that various philosophical and spiritual traditions teach a wide variety of meditation techniques, including healing meditations of many kinds. Among those meditation techniques, we find meditations based on visualization. Even in a given set of traditions, say the Buddhist traditions or the Taoist traditions, we can find many kinds of visual meditations some of which are used not only for spiritual development, but also for healing. It's very common in a wide variety of traditions to use visual meditation for healing. All that's a preface. The man Dr. Mayer tells us about in her book just began to have an experience. While he was running, he had something like a visual meditation experience. And in this experience, he felt he was becoming the cells in his body. He wasn't just seeing them, but he said he was the cells. And he wasn't just seeing the lesions from the sarcoidosis, 
but he was those lesions. And as he continued, he felt he not only became those cells and lesions, but he also became the healing of those cells and lesions. Sure enough, the sarcoidosis completely reversed. He was healed. And his case was so surprising that his doctors wrote it up in a peer-reviewed medical journal. Of course, it was explained as a unexpected remission. Unexpected or spontaneous remission is another area of anomalous data, data that doesn't fit our paradigm, data that could possibly incline us to pause, maybe incline us to pause and ask sincerely, wait, does this change everything? In fact, in medicine, we find at least two kinds of anomalous data that we should know about. One is negative side effects, and the other is spontaneous remission. Negative side effects are the anomalous data that come about when people have developed a drug to treat a disease and something unexpected happens in the course of the treatment. Now, we hear about them so often that we might take them for granted. They're important. Negative side effects indicate limitations in our understanding of reality, particularly how the human body functions because a drug maker would love to make a drug that they could advertise as working in 100% of cases with zero negative side effects. The reason they can't do that is because our knowledge is incomplete and fragmented. Most of the drugs that pharmaceutical companies design are incomplete, out of balance. They arise from fragmentation, and they often further fragmentation. That's their modus operandi. Now, this could indicate a serious need for a shift in our understanding of what health and healing are, what the human body and mind are, an understanding of what reality is, what the cosmos is, what the so-called environment is, and the relationship between the human being and the so-called environment. We might need to do a lot of rethinking. And the evidence for it is right in front of us, including these sorts of anomalous data that we've all heard or read in the commercials from the pharmaceutical companies. It's a list of, of confessions. It's a confession of ignorance. Now, another set of anomalous data in medicine is the data involving cases of spontaneous remission. There is a significant database on spontaneous remission maintained by the Institute of Noetic Sciences, which was founded by the astronaut Edgar Mitchell, ultimately as a consequence of his spiritual experience when he traveled to space. There was a graduate student at Berkeley named Kelly Turner who went through that database and ended up writing her dissertation, her PhD dissertation, on her findings about what unifies these cases of spontaneous remission what these cases have in common and therefore what they could teach us about health and healing that the current paradigm might not be doing such a good job recognizing. The Spontaneous Remission Database 
catalogs cases in which the patients were told that either Western medicine, dominant culture medicine, had already exhausted its options for them, or that it simply had none. These people were told their case was terminal, and that was all there was to it. You can look at Turner's dissertation if you have access to the ProQuest database, academic database, or you can read her book. It's called Radical Remission, Surviving Cancer Against All Odds. Spontaneous remission cases are quite interesting because in a certain way, they could make us pause. If you had a terminal illness, if doctors told you that you were going to die, and if somehow, by making the kinds of changes Turner documents in her book, you managed to survive, to either heal or somehow go into remission, that experience might create a shift in your being. Maybe it's the shift in your being that created the healing. These cases often involve a spiritual or philosophical shift. That's a key unifying factor. It's one of the factors that Kelly Turner found in her research, a spiritual or philosophical turn that happens in these people's lives and is prior to that experience of remission or healing. Now, this kind of turn can arise in part because when death is imminent, as I said, it can open us up. That can get us to pause. There's a literature, in fact, on brushes with death and how sometimes that leads people to change their life. Because just a brush with death can get us to say, this changes everything. Death itself, which we repress in this culture, that's one of the problems with the dominant culture, one of the reasons why the pattern of insanity can perpetuate itself, we repress death. But death could stop us in our tracks, force us to pause. Just acknowledging it could force us to let go of our habits of thought, our hubris of thought, our habits of thinking, speaking, and acting as we do. And we'll discuss some of that in other contemplations. For now, we can highlight the fact that what we think we know is not the end of the story. There's always something more in reality. Reality is this evermore. We're always being invited to see something more, and that something more can involve a different way of knowing and being, living and loving. Certainly it can involve a different sense of ourselves, a different sense of the world, our, our feel for the cosmos and our vision of what the cosmos is. Let's consider another example. Imagine you need brain surgery. This is a fun one. There are two neurosurgeons you have to choose from. One is a man who uses the best so-called evidence-based medicine to determine when to move forward with your surgery. He has data that has been published in peer-reviewed journals, and this is how he determines how to handle your case. He does lose patients, but that's part of the game. It's brain surgery. He has the best decision procedure possible based on the data. It's just not 100% perfect. 
And we love the phrase evidence-based. Everyone from the pharmaceutical industry to now the self-help industrial complex tries to sell us with it. The whole self-help catastrophe loves to use what it refers to as evidence-based approaches. I'm not saying I'm against evidence. It's what these terms might mean. The point is the first neurosurgeon sounds great. Again, not 100% perfect, but the failures are part of the evidence base, and he follows those protocols. That's the first neurosurgeon. The second one that you have to choose from is world-renowned. And what's interesting about this neurosurgeon is he doesn't lose patients. He gets flown all over the planet to perform difficult surgeries. Brain surgeries in general are pretty risky. We could say there's some kind of risk in any surgery. Obviously, we get that. Brain surgery is particularly risky for a lot of reasons. And this guy's getting flown around to, to, to personally perform some of the trickiest. And things always seem to go perfectly for this guy. He's got a better track record than the evidence-based surgeon. However, it turns out he can't really talk about what his procedure is for determining when to move forward with a surgery. Now, this neurosurgeon is a real person, just as I'm sure are, uh, there are out there people like the first guy who just used the evidence-based procedure. There are lots of neurosurgeons like that. That's the standard of care. But the second guy is also real. And he met with Dr. Mayer, and she writes about it in her book. He came to her because he was having severe ongoing headaches that weren't being relieved by ordinary means. Well, they seemed to have no physical cause that he could determine, so he ended up seeing a therapist with the thought that the headaches might be psychosomatic, which means they had their origin in the psyche, not in something we might call biological. As Dr. Mayer spoke with him, she found out that his life seemed to be going very well. He had a stellar career and a happy family life. And as they were discussing his life, she heard him say that he had to give up teaching. He said that he loved teaching and didn't want to give it up. She checked in with him, asking if he really did love it. And if so, why would he have to give it up? He said he loved teaching as much as he loved doing surgery, but he had a major problem. He said he didn't think he could actually teach what he thought was crucial to his process for successful surgery. He couldn't teach the secret of his success. He had never spoken to anyone about it because it was a difficult thing to discuss. But he decided to share it with Dr. Mayer. In order to determine when to move forward with a surgery, this neurosurgeon would just sit with the patient. He would sit at their bedside, maybe for minutes, maybe for hours, maybe for days, waiting for something. He explained that what he was waiting for was the appearance of a white light around the patient's head. When he saw this white light and he said he would see it clearly, he knew he could proceed 
with the surgery. That's a strange way of determining how to move forward with a major medical procedure. I would call it evidence. It's an evidence-based approach, but that's the point. What is the evidence? It's not the kind of thing we would find in any so-called rational decision theory. This is the term people use in evidence-based approach, uh, in conventional scientific analytical domain. You would find reference to rational decision theory or rational decision procedures. Clearly, this neurosurgeon was using a decision procedure, but it's one that draws on a different way of knowing, a different way of being than what we find in conventional science and conventional thinking. Think about how we claim to decide when to give medicine to our child, when to pitch a project or proposal at work, when to ask for a raise, when to make a career change. How do we do those things? If I told you that I get what I want in my career because I wait to ask for it until I see a white light around the client's head or if I had a boss, a boss's head, you might think me crazy. But what if I always seem to get what I ask for and your approach is hit and miss? What if I could teach you how to apply a different way of knowing and then it ended up working for you as different ways of knowing tend to do for my clients? It might be an experience that would lead you to say, this changes everything. Now, as a clarification, I don't use the white light method myself, but different ways of knowing and being, living and loving are central to my work as a philosopher because they're central to the wisdom traditions. That's why this material gets excluded. When you learned philosophy in college, it wasn't this stuff. It was the academic stuff, the rational stuff, the limited, limiting, fragmented, fragmenting version, not love wisdom but academic scholarship. It's not to say that everybody in the university is this way, but Henry David Thoreau made an important suggestion when he wrote, and that was a long time ago that he wrote it, that there are nowadays professors of philosophy, but not philosophers. Now, those traditions are still available to us, and we in the dominant culture have a healthy lineage to draw from, but we're also spoiled. We have other lineages very willing to teach us. So we don't even have to worry about co-opting or colonizing. For instance, the Buddhist and Taoist traditions, they've got no problem sharing their teachings. And many traditions are quite open for any sincere seeker who wants to find better ways of knowing and being, living and loving. As I have noted, Elizabeth Mayer calls these sorts of experiences extraordinary knowing. And we can suggest again that maybe it's not so extraordinary as if it's something that shouldn't be able to happen, you know, something supernatural. But as Jeffrey Kuypel puts it, maybe nature itself is already super. And maybe our sense of the ordinary is just so banal and boring and narrow and atomized. 
And we also considered how the message that Socrates gives us, the same message that we would find in a variety of philosophical, spiritual, and religious traditions around the world, the message that Socrates gives us and that those traditions give us is that what we think we know is often the main barrier between what we are now and what we might become. A barrier between what we think we are and what our true nature is, what we think the cosmos is, and what the cosmos really might be. What we know, even if it's even if it's something that's unconscious, you know, because we might say, look, I really don't know what I'm doing in our lives, but every step we take is as if we know. So there are the things that we really do assert, we cling to certain views about ourselves. They might be self-criticisms that we hate about ourselves. We, we hate the way we treat ourselves. We hate the limiting ideas we have about ourselves, but we still are acting like those things are true when we act in the world. But then there's a whole vision of the nature of mind and the cosmos. That's why these hacking approaches that we see in the self-help catastrophe, they're not going to work. Going to a mindset coach, not likely to work. The wisdom traditions don't teach us mindset hacks. They teach us a holistic way of viewing the cosmos that functions. And so what we know, what we are acting on as a, as a basis of knowledge is a barrier between ourselves and what we might discover and create for ourselves in the world. And that's part of it too. There has to remain this unknown, this edge of creation discovery. In our world today, it seems very clear that what we know is a major problem. Socrates was just trying to get people to stop, to stop, to pause, but we keep doing, we keep doing. And we can sense in the dominant culture the things that people are taught to know. That people are taught to know that it's those darn Mexicans who are creating all our problems, taking all our jobs, along with Antifa and the liberals, or it's the Republicans. It's the rednecks or whatever derogatory terms we want to use for each other. And we're taught to know that if we just build a wall and buy more guns or make certain kinds of investments, whatever it might be, all the proposals, even ones we think are progressive, often nowhere near, million miles away from touching the root of the problem. So we might know that it's the GOP and their bad policies. We might know that if we elect this particular person, he or she will fix everything for us. We seem to know that capitalism is the only way to organize an economy. We're so resistant to changing it, even though a good number of people are quite suspicious of it. What's our everyday activity like? What does the self-help catastrophe teach us to do? Be good capitalists. And we imagine that we know the only alternative to what we have is some kind of terrible communistic economy. It's going to be capitalism or it's Stalin or Mao or something. Those are the only choices. That's what we know. And I want to say again, these might not be your favorite bits and bites of knowledge, but we all have them. We all have things we know. We know that our way of knowing the world is the right way. And we know that people who disagree are wrong. And we're talking about something subtle. This is not just about having dogmatic opinions. We might be very open-minded in many ways. And nevertheless, we still hold unconscious beliefs. Unconscious means not conscious. 
unconscious beliefs about the nature of self, the nature of reality, and these function as givens, as things we take for granted because we just know them to be true. We have inherited a style of consciousness from the dominant culture. We've all been affected by conquest consciousness. It's a general way or set of ways to know ourselves and our world that the culture gives us so completely, we can't simply wish it away. We can't simply disagree on an intellectual level. Many of us do. It doesn't change the style of consciousness having its influence on us. And we have all this anomalous data about our ways of knowing, all this feedback from life, from nature, from our kin, human and non-human beings, giving us feedback about the ways that we know. And that feedback, if we would listen carefully enough, it could make us say, maybe ethically it should make us say, because it's the right thing to say, it could make us say, wait, this changes everything. What might change everything? What does it take to get us to change? What feedback do we already have? What are these countless sentient beings telling us? And the insentient ones too. How about the fact that 94% of the tap water in the United States is contaminated with plastic? How about the other pollutants in our water? We heard about the drinking water crisis in Flint, Michigan in 2014, the lead contamination there. But we, we probably don't all know, it's not very widely known, that hundreds of communities across the United States have unacceptable levels of lead in their water. Other communities have supposedly acceptable levels of lead, but do we really know the acceptable level of lead? And what about the mercury? in our water, the dioxin in our water, the rocket fuel in our water as Tesla starts to try to conquer space? What about the other petrochemicals in our water, the pharmaceuticals in our water? What do sentient beings think when they experience this? Human and non-human. What do those beings think? What do they try to tell us with their bodies and their minds? Sometimes these toxins are at plainly unsafe levels. At other times, their levels are declared safe, but again, from a fragmented and fragmenting understanding about what happens when a massive cocktail of chemistry flows through our water and all through our body day after day after day. We all carry this toxic burden not only from the water, but also from the air and the soil. We have soil erosion, maybe 60 harvests left in some places, maybe less. We have rising inequality. We seem to be in perpetual war now in the United States, and now increasingly we should be nervous about nuclear catastrophe. We have all sorts of mental health problems, not only from the wars, but in general in our society. We have the increase in loneliness, increase in feelings of disconnectedness. We have less leisure time. It's an extraordinary situation. That's the extraordinary part. Uh, what we might call extraordinary knowing 
is not as extraordinary as the situation we've created by means of our ordinary knowing, the ordinary conventional ways of knowing and being, living and loving that we all participate in, even indirectly. I don't mean that it's just the so-called scientific and rational way of knowing that's gotten us into trouble. What I mean is all of us live our lives by means of what we think we know. We've all been indoctrinated into this style of consciousness and we carry the burden of its karma. This whole approach of knowing, whatever it might be, holds in common all the things that each of us claim to know as individuals. It's as if our way of knowing is a vast pattern of insanity. Even though we might think we're independent somehow, operating, we're in that pattern, we're woven into it, out of it. Spiritual, philosophical, and religious traditions all over the world tell us that we need to know differently. We need to know ourselves, each other, and the world differently. These traditions tell us that there are possibilities for knowing that from our current standpoint, seem extraordinary, but should seem quite ordinary and most appropriate, a common sentience once we begin to mature. Opening ourselves to them is opening ourselves to an ongoing sense of sacredness and wonder. So we could call them wondrous. But they aren't wondrous in the sense of being supernatural or delusionary. They only seem strange to us because when we are caught in a certain paradigm, things outside that paradigm can seem strange, nonsensical, and even irrational. This is a fairly widely accepted thing in science and philosophy of science. It's important to recognize that this very thing happens in science. The history of science in the dominant culture is full of these shifts in which the new way of looking at the world is, from the old perspective, quite nonsensical, even irrational. The shift, for instance, from Newtonian mechanics to relativity and quantum theory is a major shift. It's important to recognize that from the standpoint of Newtonian physics, from that way of knowing the world, quantum and relativity theory make extraordinary claims. We need paradigm shifts like the one from Newton to Einstein and the quantum view. And indeed, we still have not accomplished even that shift. So radical is it. And the difficulty in making that shift more fully and maybe even opening to further transformation and maturity is that many scientists, like the rest of us, are quite resistant to paradigm shifts. Therefore, scientists, like the rest of us, can be very resistant to ideas that strike them as extraordinary from their current perspective. All of us can get rather defensive about these sorts of things. And then we begin to live that Socratic irony we contemplated earlier. 
It is precisely what we know that so often keeps us from arriving at greater insight, greater wisdom, greater love, greater peace, greater happiness, healing, and well-being. Now, what we tried to do in this contemplation is lay out some of the basic problems that are well exemplified by these fascinating stories of anomalous data. The anomalous, the strange, the uncanny, the unsettling, and the wondrous are important in our lives, spiritually and philosophically speaking. From a spiritual or philosophical perspective, the principal set of anomalous data is suffering, our own suffering and also the suffering of others. When we experience suffering in our lives, the suggestion from many philosophical or spiritual traditions is that it should give us pause. Experiencing suffering can give us pause, especially if we start to recognize the patterns of suffering, the patterns of suffering that manifest in our lives. When we start to be able to say, wait, this is the same kind of relationship I was just in, or this is the same uncomfortable position I've been in before with this friend. This is the same argument I've had with my boss. Seeing these patterns becomes important because the patterns can get us to pause, to slow down, to say, wait a second, maybe this changes everything or should change everything. It would be nice if every experience of this changes everything were happy and exciting. However, they are all mysterious and wondrous in their own way, including the painful ones. And some of them are pretty painful, even frightening. Anytime we suffer, we can pause and ask if we are knowing the world knowing ourselves in a way that doesn't really work, if we are knowing something about ourselves or others that is getting in our way, interfering with freedom and intimacy, with mystery and wonder, with wildness and wellness, and maybe even with magic. We know with such certainty what kind of a bad person we are, what our weaknesses are. We know so well the kinds of things about us that are the sources of our self-criticism and self-loathing. We know how to give ourselves a terribly hard time. We know how to be mean to ourselves. We know how to create suffering in ourselves and we know how to provoke it in others. We know how to see the world, how to know the world in ways that lead to suffering for ourselves and other beings, human and non. Can we know the world and know ourselves differently, radically differently? Can we practice a way of knowing and being, living and loving in the fullness of our being? Can we practice knowing and being, living and loving from the heart of wonder and wildness, sacredness and serenity? Can we practice a genuinely original thinking, 
genuinely original, not the kind of stuff we hear about in our culture, not thinking outside the box. All that does is extend the box. Something more profound, thinking that would lead to greater peace, greater healing and happiness, greater wisdom, love and beauty, healthier ecologies for ourselves and others. As we continue our contemplation of these matters, we will look into questions like this and many more. And what we want to do is continue to find and discuss concrete ways to move forward, to cultivate the whole of life onward. Love wisdom, which means philosophy or spirituality, love wisdom is not about my giving you an answer to your life because it's your life. You have to figure out your life. But love wisdom is a user's manual for our lives. Indeed, the traditions of wisdom, love, and beauty from around the world offer us a user's manual for the cosmos, a cosmic user's manual for our heart, mind, body, and world, a user's manual for the whole thing. The teachings and practices practices of these traditions can help us to cultivate the whole of life onward, moving in mutuality, living and loving on a common ground that gives space for our individuality. The wisdom traditions from around the world offer techniques, strategies, practices, concepts, stories, mythopoetic stories and wisdom stories that can frame a way for each one of us to discover what's most important in our lives, for each of us to find the meaning and the purpose of our lives in relationship with all the other beings who make this world together with us. The stories, practices, ideas, teachings from these traditions help us attune with wisdom, love, and beauty. They help us attune with sacredness and wonder, and they put us in touch with the real magic of life, not something supernatural or extraordinary in a narrow sense, but the ordinary extraordinariness, the superness that nature already is and we, we ourselves already are. Today and over the next few days, see if you can find that sense of wonder in your life. It's always there. See if you can invite those moments that open you up to the possibilities of this changes everything. Even something seemingly mundane can do that because the ordinary already is extraordinary. If you have reflections or questions or your own stories of wonder to share, Send them in at wisdomloveandbeauty.org and we'll address some of them in a future contemplation. Until then, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.